to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome, everyone, to episode 35. That means that next month is our three-year anniversary of conducting these interviews. Time really does fly when you're having fun. (laughs) I have really enjoyed these conversations. I hope that we've shed some light on the amazing work that COOs and operations professionals are performing on a daily basis throughout the RIA industry. And we have two more fantastic guests today, both with some unique stories to tell. So let's dive right in. Joining us from Matrix Private Capital Group is is Amanda Green. Amanda works out of the headquarters in New York City, but Matrix also has offices in Chicago, Los Angeles, and Palm Beach, Florida. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. I'm very excited. Cool. And then joining Amanda is someone that I've known for almost a decade now. Talk about time flying. Gary Davis Jr. is the COO at Satofsky Asset Management, which is also headquartered in New York City. Gary, welcome to the COO Roundtable. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, Amanda, I'm going to go to you first. Why don't you give us a little overview of Matrix Private Capital Group? Of course. Matrix Private Capital Group is a $600 million privately owned diversified asset management firm. We were founded founded in 2016, and we really specialize in wealth and strategic advisory, as well as private equity. Our wealth management side really focuses on providing high net worth individuals and families with holistic solutions really tailored to their needs. Matrix differentiates themselves by offering our advisors, as well as our clients, proprietary access to our deals that are private equity side sources. We currently have 18 employees around the country. Like you've said, we have offices in New York, Chicago, Florida, LA, and we just recently opened one in Newport Beach, which is super exciting. About 11 of the employees are just focused on wealth management. So we are really dedicated to the wealth management side in our RAA business. Historically, we've really grown organically and inorganically. A few years ago, we onboarded a team that's based in Chicago. And since then, we've seen our advisors have tremendous success and really grow organically from there, gaining new clients pretty much every day from what I've seen. And looking forward, our plans are really to grow inorganically. We, we understand that landscape is super competitive right now, but we believe we have a unique proposition and a attract advisors to our firm. And we're really super excited to be doing that going forward. Perfect. And Gary, give us the story behind Satofsky Asset Management. Yes. Satofsky Asset Management was founded in 2007 by Jonathan Satofsky. We manage about 700 million of assets as of the end of September. We have about eight employees today and actually have three open positions that we hope to fill shortly. We, uh, our ideal client that we work with, we look for individuals who are open to our collaborative process. They're not solely focused on investment performance. They see the value in our comprehensive financial planning process. They allow us to be their financial coach of the client's financial team. And we're focusing on, and from an asset level of clients with about 3 million or more in investable net worth. Historically, you know, we've grown through a client and center of influence referrals, and we will continue to grow organically through that funnel. In the future, we are looking at inorganic ways of growing the firm as well. And actually, I'm really excited about 
about I'm leading my first offsite meeting with the leadership team in about a week and very excited for those conversations and the decisions that we're going to make. That's great. And so you joined, Gary, you joined the firm this summer. But as I mentioned, you and I have known each other for years. So walk us through your career progression and how you arrived at Satofsky this year. Yes, yes. I started uh, August 9th was my first day at Satofsky. So I've, uh, I've worked in the industry since 1996, and I started in the industry as a financial planning analyst. Actually, before then, before graduating, and I graduated in 1996, prior to graduating, I actually did an internship my junior year of college where I got my Series 663 in my life and health license. And I did an internship at a branch office of New England Life. And I learned quickly that summer that my role in the industry was not going to be sales or client acquisition focused, but be more internal, you know, internally focused. In doing that, I've actually, I've held almost every job function within an investment advisory firm you can think of, besides being an, an actual investment advisor. I have a similar educational background that advisors do. I actually have an undergraduate degree in financial planning from Purdue University. Uh, I also have a master's degree in accounting and financial management. I've held the COO, the chief operating officer and chief compliance officer a role throughout my career at several firms before joining Satofsky as their inaugural chief operating officer uh, this past August. And as Matt knows, prior to my life working within investment advisory firms, I actually spent some time, about nine years or so of my career, was spent as a consultant. And I actually started a consulting practice from the ground up back in 2007, 2006, 2007, where I focused on operations compliance and business management consulting. I then merged that in with a larger consulting firm, Market Council, where I met you and I met, and I had the pleasure of working with you while I was at Market Council. Yep. Uh, and of course, I continued while there providing my type of consulting, the operations compliance and business management consulting. Uh, in 2015, I left Market Council to go work for one of my clients as their inaugural chief operating officer, as well as taking on the CCO role. My role at Satofsky as their chief operating officer, I'm responsible for the culture of the firm, infrastructure, technology, operations, process and procedures, strategic planning, financial reporting and tracking, and I partner with our CCO with overall risk management and vendor management. That's great. And Amanda, you also joined, I don't know if August 9th was your start date, but <laughs> it was right around that time. So you joined Matrix this summer as well, but you've had some, some very interesting experiences in wealth management and, and in particular in the RIA space. So tell us about your career. Yeah, definitely. I actually started, I think the week before, I think I started the last week of July. Um, <laughs> So just before Gary, I took a little <laughs> different approach. My path was a little bit more unique. When I graduated college, I graduated Binghamton University with a bachelor's of science in human development with a minor of sociology. So I kind of fell into the financial services industry and started my career at Merrill Lynch as a client associate, where shortly after I joined, we decided to go independent and, and join Hightower Advisors, which was exciting because I was able to learn a completely different view back then. It was 2015. The independent space was fairly young. So I still remember my father being like, well, are you sure you want to leave Merrill Lynch? It's a solid place to start your career and really learn. And I took the risk then and really um, fell in love with the independent space and was able to transition our book of business over from Merrill Lynch and really oversee the day-to-day -day responsibilities of our team and manage our platform providers and, and our integrations to really make sure that 
the transition went smoothly, but as well as our client experience was really, truly important to us. And the way I approach the financial services industry is a bit more of a human aspect and, and a psychological background of understanding people's needs and their situations and, and how that goes into you know, their their decisions they make from a financial standpoint. After Hightower, I decided to take a position at BNY Mellon Pershing, specifically in their RIA channel, where I held multiple rows. My first role was in their conversion team, where I was facilitating multiple implementations of new business onto their platform and really working across the whole division to be sure that all those transitions went really smoothly. And the last role I held at Pershing was really focusing on collaborating across the enterprise and developing new processes to enhance the client experience and support senior leaders. And that was a relationship manager position. So, you know, I really bring my experiences from Hightower and BNY Mellon Pershing to build a strong operational foundation to allow our current advisors to grow and and really facilitate that growth, but as well as prepare our firm to continue to grow as we're moving into the inorganic space and allowing us to be successful at it. Perfect. And being that you're both in your first couple of months, almost started the exact same day, what advice do you have for other operations professionals who may be new to their firms? What should they be looking to evaluate first? I know you both are in this big evaluation process. So Amanda, I'll go to you first on this one. I think the biggest advice I think I can give is to really listen and understand what has occurred so far at the firm and really do a deep dive into the current processes of platform providers and look at a very holistic way and understand how to prioritize from there. I When I first came in, I, I told everybody I don't have an agenda. I really am allowing our teams to provide feedback on you know our systems, our integrations, our, our operational processes to really drive the change that we're going to make in the future as well as what we could do better. So I think the biggest advice is to almost take a step back and really listen and understand the full context of, for me, matrix and build out from there and evaluate, you know, all the little operational things that we can do better. Yep. And Gary, you talked about this is your second time being an RIA's first COO. And I know you had a pretty aggressive 100 day plan when you first joined Satofsky. So talk to us about your evaluation process. (laughs) Oh man, you're giving away my, you're giving away everything. You already talked about the 100 day plan. (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) Yes, I have. Uh, I have, you know, held these this initial, you know, COO role or director of operations role for a few firms. And listen, I, I've learned a lot by doing this throughout my career, and, and I've learned by doing things really poorly, and I've learned also learned by by doing things well. I think Amanda would agree with me. There's no one right way of doing it. There really is one wrong way, though, and and that one wrong way is you come in like a bull in a china shop and trying to force a lot of change onto the firm without you fully understanding the firm and the culture first. And that's what, you know, what I've done coming into Satofsky is really working what I call my first 100-day plan. And it starts by building rapport and trust with the staff and with Jonathan, the owner. I set some one-on-one meetings with all the staff. I have set several meetings with the staff. I focus some of those meetings on just the business and understanding their roles and responsibilities, um, how long they've been in the firm, what they're seeing that works and doesn't work, what improvements would they make if they were in my position. And then other, some of the other one-on-one calls were more personal in nature, just getting to know the staff more, 
on a personal level. And of course, me asking them questions as well as me giving them information about my professional and personal life. I also have implemented some team building events and we're going to continue to build those out. Obviously, it is very important for me to, to first begin to understand the firm's culture, its culture, its business practices, the firm's way of being, and how to empower the staff and Jonathan. I have been focusing my time on integrating myself into the organization first before recommending any material or major changes. Now, I've done this, and I agree with Amanda, some of how I've been, been doing this as well has been really conducting an audit of the firm and conducting that audit in areas of operations and business practices, services. And this is going to take you a few months. You don't want to really rush this. You want to take your time. Once you're now comfortable, again, I'm coming into my third month at Sakowski, and I'm now getting to a comfortable point. And I mentioned holding my first offsite with the leadership. There are going to be some recommended changes that I am going to be proposing. I now feel that I'm in a comfort level now and I've built rapport and trust and I've gotten to understand the firm enough where I can start to make some of these suggestions. So you, you both touched on it a little bit in that last answer, but change management is always so crucial to everyone, all of our listeners, whether they're, they're new to the firm or they're plugging away at an existing firm, they've been there for a while, but there's always change that needs to happen. So I always like talking about strategies for implementing change. So Amanda, how do you get buy-in from both above and below? So how do you get buy-in from management and from the staff when you're suggesting change? I think Gary hit on a lot of things in his previous answer. I, I think you need to build a really great rapport and demonstrate that you understand the culture, understand the dynamics of the firm. And, and you know, for me, it was all about taking an objective standpoint on everything and, and really understanding what's going on, understanding people's motivations, where they're coming from, and really taking in all that feedback and gaining their trust. I mean, for me, it you know, the first few months has been a lot of the easy wins. If I can advocate for our employees, if I could go out and make little changes to make their life easier, it, when it's not anything big, but I think that's how you start gaining that rapport and that trust. And it's all about transparency and communication. I think, you know, personally, I've developed documents that have detailed all of my ideas, everything I've taken in from a feedback perspective and put it in a document and almost a project plan. And I've shared that and I've said, you know, this is what I'm hearing from all of you guys. Am I on the right track? What can I change? Is there something I'm missing? And then from there, it's about setting realistic expectations. You know, change is slow. It's not going to happen overnight. Some of these items are big ticket items that are going to take a long time to really move the needle on. So it's setting that expectation that this is on the radar and we're going to work towards our ideal state that we're coming up with together and collaborating with on together. And then we'll get there. It's just, it's not going to happen overnight. We had David Cantor and Scott Slater from Fidelity. They were on a while ago, well over a year ago. And they said something similar. They said, get a few easy wins under your belt. Do some small stuff first and just it, it stuff that you, the low hanging fruit, get that under your belt. That'll build that trust and then start with bigger initiatives. A lot of people make that mistake of, well, I want to make a big impact right out of the gate. And so let's do some massive change. And people just haven't quite gotten that trust level with you yet. So I love that suggestion that you had there. 
but I feel like sometimes when people want to make a big impact and really prove themselves, they think they need to go over the top and do anything crazy, where I think keeping expectations realistic and, and little things go a long way. And, and I think we all need to take a step back and realize that the little things are going to help us. Yep, exactly. So Gary, you had a great answer before. So maybe you've given a lot of your answer to this question, but what other change management techniques do you rely on? Yeah, first of all, everything that Amanda said, I completely agree with 100%. And with having your other previous guests on, I will admit I have fallen into that trap at, some, at certain points in time in my career. And Amanda could probably agree she's, she's done the same. And that's the, the one thing, listen, as humans, we learn by making mistakes, right? And quite frankly, it's not a mistake if you're learning from it. And you're growing from it. And I've, I've made some, some big mistakes in this area of change management. One thing, and I, I think it's really important to note before I, I answer, is I recently read something about the, the top two things that motivate people. It's not power and it's not money. It's empowerment and it's respect. And I really think about this a lot when I'm, when I'm thinking about change management. I think about how to not just listening to people as they are giving me feedback, either feedback or frustration on what's happening within the organization, but also how I'm presenting, whether it's to the leadership team or to the staff, how I'm presenting the change and how I'm involving everybody in that change. So, you know, when it comes to the process that I've, I've kind of vetted out, you know, over my career, first, I like to get, you know, a really deep feedback from the people who are doing the work. Again, tell me what's working, what's not working. If you had the ability to make change, what would you do? Uh, and why would you do it? How would you do it? So I, I really love getting that feedback. And again, taking that and then also, you know, taking my experiences and knowledge and then coming in. And I think it's very important that if you're making changes within an organization, you need to get alignment from the top. Leadership starts from the top and it works its way down. So first and foremost, I make sure that I present the change, the reason for change, the value add to the organization, present that to the leadership team. We have a discussion. Sometimes what I'm presenting is what is decided upon. Other times what I present is then discussed and negotiated to a final output, okay? Once we have that final output, I then present what we as a leadership team, what we have decided and why we have decided. Again, what is the value add to the organization? And I give the staff, I present that to the staff and I give the staff some time to absorb this, some time to think about this and some time to come back with their feedback. So I normally give, you know, when we're making major changes like this, I'll give a week or two. I say, listen, you know, here's what we're doing and why. The target date for implementing this new process or technology, what it may be, it's going to be on this date. Now, let's say it's going to be a week or two weeks from now. So please, you know, I encourage everybody, come to me. I'm happy to hear anything right now as we're in the meeting. Or if you're more comfortable one-on-one, please call me right afterwards. Let's set up a meeting. I want to hear your voice. And, you know, listen, sometimes there's feedback and sometimes there's not. Sometimes from that feedback, I realize that, oh, wow, we didn't think about some of these things. And then we go back, you know, into our leadership team and we make discuss that and, and make some changes. Or sometimes that feedback is, I appreciate that, but here's a reason why we don't think that's going to work. But making sure that I'm not dismissive to that individual as they're communicating that with me to make sure that I am empowering them and respecting them. I want them to continue to give feedback because as we know, all the three of us, as we know on this phone, what we all think will work in terms of change, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And we want to make sure that we continue to get feedback from the boots on the ground up 
hey, this change is great. Wow, it's adding a lot of value. Wow, the client experience. I have more time in my day, whatever it may be. Or you know what? Wow, we're a few weeks into this. And I got to tell you, it just seems to be working. It seems to be doing opposite of what we thought. So that's how I handle that. The date, you know, you talk about the the implementation date. (laughs) In my experience, you also have to keep reminding them that that date is coming. That date is approaching. I'm serious. I it, it's comical. Um, if you don't laugh, you cry. <laughs> so I'll say it's comical that you'll say, "Hey, this you know whatever the change is, this change is happening on January 1st, and on December 31st, people will come to me and say, I didn't know you were serious. <laughs> we're really going to make this shit. <laughs> I haven't actually gone into this yet. So reminding them of the looming date of change is, is important in my experience. I agree. Yeah. So uh, I mentioned the podcast. We're coming up on our three-year anniversary. One of the things that we've talked about a lot uh, on many episodes is this concept of profit versus growth. The COO or the director of operations is often brought into an RIA because the owner of the firm realizes, geez, we've been growing like crazy, but nothing additional is hitting the bottom line. We've figured out growth. We can grow, but now we actually need to bring someone in who is going to help us grow in a profitable fashion. And that's the million dollar problem there, right? Quite literally. And I know that's a big part of both of your jobs. So Gary, I'll go to you first on this one. Talk to us about how you affect both growth and profitability at Satofsky? Yeah, listen, I think this is a great question and and a great topic. First and foremost, one of my primary roles is making sure that all of our advisors and our client service staff have the tools and support they need to provide that exceptional client experience that we provide to our clients. Also holding the firm accountable to our business development plan, reviewing targets versus actual at some frequency, and making sure that we are on target, managing our operating budget, and making adjustments where needed for major events, like major market shifts, staffing, exceeding our targets early on in the timeframe. Of course, very important, managing the expense side of the P&L to ensure that we're using our capital as efficiently as possible. And then I'm, and I'm very, very thankful. You know, Jonathan is very, very involved with technology and always looking for innovative ways from a technological standpoint to help us grow and be more efficient. And I am the same way. And I'm always looking for ways where we could have technology help to improve our processes and efficiency, which obviously is going to provide a better client experience. And again, have happy staff. If our staff is fulfilled, and valued, our client experience is going to be the same way. And our organic way of growth is going to just be very natural, uh, where we'll have a steady flow of referrals coming in the door. And Amanda, how are you tackling the profit versus growth conundrum at Matrix? I think I echo a lot of uh, Gary's comments. You know, my goal is to create an ecosystem that's comprised of, you know, platform providers and efficient processes that will foster the growth of our advisors. With that, it really comes evaluating what I call our platform partners, you know, our technology stacks, our custodians, everything that's under our foundation, and really understanding the services and challenges we face and addressing those head on. And and sometimes that's managing the costs and making decisions about are we leveraging systems and providers the best way we possibly can and looking how we could do that more efficiently and more productively and working with those partners to do so. I think our job is to really make sure that we're equipping our advisors with the best technology and the best processes to allow them to serve their clients in the best way possible and have a great client experience to allow them 
to grow. And for me, because we are a diversified asset management firm with a lot of access to alternative investment providers and our private equity side, it's allowing access to information and knowledge sharing is really important at Matrix because we really depend on all sides of our business for that growth. So it's really a combination of access to information, making the client experience really joyful and really allowing our advisors to grow and fostering that growth. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So we know that a big driver of growth in the RIA space right now is M&A. It's every headline you see in the industry press. And you both have already touched on it a bit. Amanda, you said that Matrix has already done some acquisitions, tuck-ins, whatever terminology you guys are using for it, but you've brought on advisors. So in your role, specifically your role as director of operations, how are you preparing Matrix and building out the infrastructure that will attract advisors? I think for me, technology is huge. I think technology should be intuitive. I think it should allow us to do ease of business. It should allow great client experience. And that's where I'm spending a lot of my time. I want to be sure that we are offering our advisors and any advisors that we're bringing on intuitive systems that will allow them to continue to grow. And and that's part of our infrastructure that we're really invested in is building out that foundation. And when they do onboard, it's understanding that they have access to all these things. But if there's something out there, we're open to looking at other items on the street and other vendors. It's really being sure that we're going to be prepared for that growth. And for me personally, with the background in transitions, another item is this, is planning. Is planning a transition is huge. I think everyone on this call has seen a transition go pretty poorly and also seen transitions go really smoothly. So for me, I want to be super thoughtful when we are looking to onboard another team or tuck in a team or whatever term you would like to use for that, that we're planning accordingly, understanding that that other firm that we're merging with or we're acquiring, I should say, is the right fit for Matrix. And then we can do it smoothly to avoid any hiccups. And we're just getting out in front of any issues that we could possibly can. My dad always used the cliche. I always hear his voice in my head. Measure twice, cut once. Measure twice, cut once. (laughs) The planning is so crucial. That's exactly right. Yep. It's so true. I think sometimes it gets overlooked and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of this chaos and and this transition and you're like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? Um, So we're trying to avoid that. We're trying to really plan ahead and be sure that anybody we bring on has a really good experience and, and we're planning for everything. Yeah. And Gary, you mentioned Satofsky's just getting ramped up now in thoughts of inorganic growth. Where are you guys in that process? Yeah, look, we're very early stages. So, you know, first of all, I agree with everything Amanda said. And I've been thinking as I've been preparing for my offsite, because we're going to be talking about some of this. I actually wrote down a few other things that I didn't think about from Amanda. So thank you very much. But yeah, we're just thinking about this. And a lot of thought has to go into this. I'm not sure Amanda and, and Matt, both of you have probably seen this. Again, there's not one right way of doing things, but there's uh, there's also some pretty common ways of doing things wrong. And where I've seen a lot of firms do this wrong is just say, hey, look, everybody's out there doing M&A. I'm just going to go acquire an advisor. <laughs> but there was no thought process behind it, right? Starting from what that initial checklist is of, in terms of what must that advisor have in terms of a client base or assets, personality or philosophy, geographic location, you know, whatever it may be. You got to have that. You have to have your infrastructure. I mean, again, I've seen it where advisors go out and just hire advisors, but then they don't have the infrastructure to support them. And now they're playing catch up and it just leaves a really sour taste in that advisor's mouth. Hey, I was promised all these things, but it's not even here. 
and unfortunately, you know, you'll see a lot of these kinds of relationships that start like this end very quickly and very poorly. But that's what we're doing right now is just trying to figure out, do we want to be doing, whether it's M&A or tuck-ins? And if we do, okay, great. Well, let's start to plot, you know, what is that ideal advisor? What are we looking for in that person? And then where are our gaps? in our infrastructure that need to be filled and in how we go about filling that and setting that project plan you know, in a timeline to, to improve the, or get the infrastructure improved to a point we can now go out and start to recruit. How are we even gonna do that? Are we gonna hire somebody internally to do recruiting? Are we gonna go externally and look at recruiters? And also where are we gonna recruit? Are we gonna try and recruit other advisors from other existing independent RIAs? Are we gonna go the BD wirehouse route, the private banking route? There's a, a lot of questions that I have written down that we're going to be going through so that we can start to make some decisions on what we think is best for Satoshi. And I think you raise a good point. I think it's really in how you plan and how you execute and, and having a defined value proposition for a firm is really important. I think it really helps with your recruiting and really just helps the process that you know exactly who you're going after from an advisor standpoint and how that process will really flow throughout the transition or the M&A process. And answering the, it's such a simple question, but it, I feel like well over 50% of the time it's forgotten. Why would an advisor want to join your firm? <laughs> they, exactly. you know, everyone exactly. gets so hung up in valuation, deal structure. Do they get equity? Do they not get equity? What's the earn out? What's the multiple? What are we putting the multiple on? Let's just take a huge step back and just answer that question. Why would they want to join here? And it really, I mean, obviously this is an operations podcast, so I'm speaking to the choir here, but it really is an operations story that you're telling. If the advisor was entrepreneurial and was willing to figure a lot of this stuff out for himself or herself, they'd go start their own firm. They don't want to deal with that. So they want to hear what your firm has to offer, how they're going to grow faster, how much can they take off of their plate and hand off to you and the firm, and they can just focus on their clients and prospects. And I think to add to that, it's also from our perspective, we look at it a little bit more granular. We want to get in the weeds of, are they the right fit? Do they have the right makeup from a book of business standpoint? What are they invested in? You know, how would that really look coming into our firm? Whereas, you know, sometimes people just say they're so profitable, they have whatever in revenue and, and they kind of get lost in that where if you break it down in a more granular way, which, you know, Gary and I probably look at a bit more, they may not be as profitable as we think. Mm -hmm. Right. That's exactly right. So to wrap things up, I want to throw a topical question at you both. When COVID first hit, no one would have predicted the success that our industry was going to experience over the next 18 months. We should have seen it coming. Financial advice, obviously was in massively high demand during that very uncertain period. But, uh, you know, I remember coming home on March 17th and just putting my head in my hand and said, oh man, this is not going to, this is not going to be pretty, but it's been a fantastic year and a half of growth for our industry and for all of our individual firms. So my question for you guys is where do you see the biggest opportunities in the next year and a half for both of your firms? So Gary, I'll, I'll go to you first on this one. We have decided to be a hybrid firm for the long term. We don't require any of our staff to be in the office at any point in time. We have some staff who like going in the office every day and working. We have some staff who are in the office a few days a week. And we have other staff who only are coming in when they have to come in. So 
we have, as said before, we have three open positions. Some of our opportunities over these next 18 months or so is going to be, number one, filling those positions. And because of our decision to be a hybrid firm, being able to expand our geographic location a little bit to find some quality talent, maybe outside of our original geographic area, which has been in just the tri-state area. You know, it's also, though, uh, giving us an opportunity to evolve our new hire experience and our new hire onboarding and our new hire training. We are going to have to evolve this within the organization if we're going to continue to be a hybrid firm, as well as continue to evolve how we are collaborating, communicating, and how are we just staying tethered to each other while we're not in an office every day, seeing each other every day. You know, what is the right mix of Zoom video chats and phone calls and on-sites and check-ins? What is the good mixture there? So we're really going to be focusing a lot of effort, not only obviously in developing business, right, but also in just making sure that our staff is supported, feel valued, continue to see their career paths, continue to grow within their positions. That's going to be real, real important. And of course, I think you hit the nail on the head, Matt, with respect to COVID. I think some of the biggest reasons why our industry has been so successful going into and coming out of COVID are those firms were already innovating from a technology standpoint and continue to look to innovate from a technology standpoint, you know, allowing us to be able to work more efficiently and more effectively with as little risk as possible, no matter where we are. And it's not just our staff being able to work from their homes, but also we have some staff who, you know, travel throughout the year. They like to go spend a month visiting family in in other states, or they want to be able to go travel for a few weeks. And in that time, they're going to be traveling for three weeks, but two of those weeks is really going to be a vacation and the other, they're going to be working. So our real focus is going to be on that. We're doing that. That's going to help with our growth goals, help to continue to promote you know, our staff from within. Again, your staff is valued. They're empowered. They're respected. They are happy. They enjoy coming into work every single day. That organic growth is going to come. It should come very naturally. It's the inorganic growth that, again, we have to make some decisions on how we want to, you know, what is the best way for us to do that as a prospect. And Amanda, what are you most excited about if you look at your your crystal ball <laughs> for the next year or two ahead? I'm trying to pick up on all the signals from the crystal ball. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's an exciting time. I think that there's a lot of uncertainty. I think, you know, I, I look at it in two ways. I think from our industry perspective, we still have a lot of volatility. We have a lot of uncertainty out there. And I think from an advisor standpoint and an organic growth standpoint, If you are able to keep calm under the pressures of all the uncertainty and the volatility, I think you could do really well gaining new clients right now. I think people are looking for the advice. I think as we were prepping for this, I told you my view on the financial advisory industry. You know, I look at it as if you were sick, you would go to a doctor. So right now, people are looking at advice from a monetary standpoint, and you go to a financial advisor. I equate it back to a doctor because, you know, you want to go to an expert. You want to go to somebody who really understands the markets. You want to be able to go to somebody who can navigate all the chaos right now. And I think the best financial advisors will see that growth organically right now, as well as from a business standpoint, the firms who are open to innovation and change and adoption to technology, I think are the ones that are really going to benefit. The ones who can move quickly and say, okay, this is working, let's continue with it, 
Or more importantly, if it's not working, let's change and let's do something else. As well as Gary hit it, like we are a hybrid model as well. We have some individuals in the office, but we also allowed our teams, our advisors to decide if they would like to be in the office. So we have four individuals in Chicago. I think one of the four goes to the office. Others are not comfortable with it or if they decide to relocate. And that's perfectly fine. We've really allowed them to have the freedom and flexibility to decide their schedules because we're not really here to force anybody to go to the office when we've all been working from home for the last 18 months really successfully. So it's being open to change and and being open to adopt new policies and procedures will I think really allow the RIA area to grow and allow our firms to grow. Here in Los Angeles for years, I would brag, if your commute was under an hour, it was like a big deal. It's very hard in LA. <laughs> um, it's so spread out, right? We're not really a city. It's it's just so spread out. Plus, obviously, traffic is horrible. And so you would always brag about, oh, I have a 45-minute commute. And it was last weekend, I think it was, someone was bragging to me about his commute was 55 minutes. And he thought that was fantastic. And I just thought, wow, like the whole world has changed. Why are you still, you know, I, I, and I did, I was guilty of it for many, many years bragging about it, but I was like, that sounds, that's two hours that, you know, I'm never leaving my desk. I'm never leaving my house and going forward. It's just too darn efficient. I would say the silver lining of COVID was there was no traffic. Like I really miss no traffic. And I think, you know, being in New York city, traffic is back. And I don't know, I, I, I kind of wish the days of everybody staying home yep. and being able to just navigate areas quickly would be really nice. Yep. Yeah, I, I said the same thing. You know, funny, man. I, I think I was bragging to you when I first started that I was able to get door to door from my house into New York City and into the office in an hour and 15 minutes. And, and I was just blown away. I was so impressed that it only took me an hour and 15 minutes to get into the office. But uh, I completely agree with Amanda. I don't know what has happened, but over the last eight or four weeks, like everybody started coming back to New York City and my hour and 15 minute commute in turned into a two hour commute in. So now back to taking the train. I'm not driving into the city anymore. Uh, no, again, I'm going in when I when I need to go in. I'm very thankful that we're, we're able to work in an environment where we can be able to work from home and be as productive as possible and be able to give that to our staff as well. Yep. Yeah, I just, I kind of, now with everybody back in the city, I want them out of the city so I can go to any restaurant, don't need yep. to make reservations. <laughs> Everybody's back. <laughs> well, this has been a fun one. Thank you both for being here. It's been interesting with both of you relatively new to your firms. Obviously, you have tons of experience in the industry, but being new to your firms and doing that evaluation process, I think that's been a very interesting perspective to share with our audience, how you're evaluating and positioning the firms for growth. So Amanda and Gary, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Amanda. Well, that is a wrap on episode 35. Thank you everyone for listening and we will talk to you soon.